0: kendra winchester and this is reading women a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women today i'm talking to kaming chang the author of bestiary which is out now from one world for a full transcript of this episode check out the show notes over on readingwomenpodcast.com and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a single episode so, today starts a series of episodes that we are doing in partnership with the Miami Book Fair. Uh, we are talking to some of the five under 35 nominees from this year's National Book Award season. And I'm so excited to talk to our first author today, uh, Kaiming Chang. So, a little bit about the Miami Book Fair before we get started. Uh, So the Miami Book Fair is doing a virtual book fair this season due to COVID, like many bookish events have been this year. All of the events will be including a list of more than 200 authors and moderators from, you know, authors of a wide range of backgrounds who write in all kinds of different types of literature and genres. And I am so excited to watch uh, this event and they will be recorded and then you can just watch them at what time works best for you, which I love. It's like Netflix, but like a book fair, which is fabulous. I will be doing an event with Lily King um, about her novel, Writers and Lovers, and I'm very excited to talk to her about that. Okay, so that's the Miami Book Fair. On to today's interview. So Kaming Chang has been doing so well with her debut novel bestiary which is what we're talking about today Uh, she has been nominated for the first novel prize from the center for fiction along with so many stellar books it's a great year for debut novelists for sure and like we mentioned earlier she was one of the 535 nominees from the national book foundation and so uh, it's very well deserved her book, Bestiary, is about three generations of Taiwanese women and the storytelling uh, that they tell each other and themselves over the course of time. It is a very playful and almost experimental novel in its structure and how it tells the story within its pages. So, Kaming Chang is a Lambda Literary Award finalist, and I've already mentioned her other honors like being a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree, and being long-listed for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize for her debut novel, Bestiary. She has a chapbook coming out next year, which is a retelling of Wuthering Heights, so keep an eye out for that. And she is currently working on a collection of short stories. All right, so without further ado, here is my conversation with K-Ming Chang. welcome to the podcast, K-Ming. I'm so excited to have you here.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to get the chance to speak to you. Oh, I am very excited as well.
0: I just finished your book a day or or two ago, and um, the audiobook is amazing, as we were talking about before I hit the record button. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I wanted to check in with you, because you've had a lot going on. You've had several different nominations, including a National Book Award, 535 uh, honoree, and that's just amazing. So congrats.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm still, yeah, kind of in shock about all of those things. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) oh, it feels like a dream. Um, But yeah, no, thank you. Well, your book,
0: all well-deserved. Your book is fantastic in what it does and how playful it is. Uh, how how long were you working on Bestiary before it came out into the world?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because I always tell people I wrote it really fast. Like I almost have no memory of drafting it because it, the drafting process was only a few months, um, but the editorial process was like another couple of years. Um, so for me, it was very much about like dismantling what I had. <laughs> um, so I think... Probably taking it all um, in total would be about like two and a half years. Um, but the editorial process was definitely like the bulk <laughs> of the entire process. Yeah.
0: And this started out sort of as like a collection originally, didn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it first began as an essay collection. Actually, I was inspired a lot by Maxine Hong Kingston's work and the way that she she blends um, you know, elements of fabulism and also like fiction and non nonfiction and myth making and fables, um, and I really ha- like love has have loved that all my life. Um, so in my mind, I was like, oh, it's gonna be like I'm not gonna think too much about um, cohesion or order. I was like thinking about Chinamen <laughs> by Maxine Hunkingston. Um, and then it kind of evolved <laughs> draft after draft into something with a little bit more of a a through line, but um, Th- that was kind of like the root of, um, yeah, the root of my process. Yeah.
0: Well, it's such a fascinating process. And when I opened the book and there, uh, you have a Maxine Hong Kingston quote in the beginning mm-hmm. that says, there's a lot of detailed doubt here, which is fantastic. Uh, Sachi and I did a deep dive into Maxine Hong Kingston earlier this year. And having just come off that research fairly recently, when I was reading your book, I was like, this definitely reminds me of Maxine Kahn-Kingston Con- and her, especially in The Woman Warrior where she does play on storytelling and women of different generations telling their stories.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, No Name Woman is definitely something I return to all the time. And even the first line of of the book, um, do not tell anyone what I'm about to tell you, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just, it's so incredible and so iconic. I, I feel like that, feels like the first line of my own kind of storytelling (laughs) Um, impulse is always this I don't know this desire to not be complicit in some way or to to think about like the silences that have been inherited yeah and to kind of I don't know create like a almost speculative um, family history I think all those impulses were definitely really inspired by her
0: in an interview that I saw, Maxine Hunkinson talked about like her mom telling her the story and that inspired, um, you know, her work a lot is that storytelling within her family. Mm-hmm. And I believe your mom told you a story that also inspired this book. Can you talk a little bit about that and what form that took for you when you were starting to work on this project?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure I mean i my my mom is a huge storyteller. um many people in my family are there's such a strong like oral storytelling tradition. Um, it feels, yeah, in some ways kind of like my, my greatest inheritance is this, um, are all of these stories that are, were being woven around me when I was a kid. And I just, I kind of didn't realize that I was always like tuning in and tuning out. I would like catch the beginning of something, the end of something and be like, wait, what, what just happened there? Um, and it was, it's always such a kind of theatrical production to, to tell these stories, which I've always loved. It's this like fully embodied experience. Um, so yeah, the story that I would kind of force my mom to tell me over and over again, um, which she was very like done with <laughs> was the hugopo story um, the story of the tiger spirit um, who it's kind of like a little red riding hood story and that like the tiger spirit kind of disguises herself as a as a benevolent grandmother and then ends up eating the children's toes but what i realized about all of those stories is that they were also kind of a way of transmitting family history but told told slant um told in a way that's more kind of indirect and there were so many undercurrents um, in the stories that she told me that i only kind of realized when i was older <laughs> and also was kind of seeing the context of my family i was like oh it makes so much sense that these are the stories that we choose to tell or to subvert or to twist um it was so revealing <laughs> so much about what it means to be you know a good mother a good woman like all of these things yeah that have been kind of really subverted in my family And that really inspired me, the idea of like telling a history slant, like through myth and fable.
0: I love what you said about the stories that we choose to tell. And I think in families, it's always so intimate because it's, you're telling these stories to kind of figure out who you are and Mm. you take those from your parents and then you make them your own or you subvert them or turn them upside down. And all of those things definitely happen in this book.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. No, I definitely, when I was, I was writing them, my, my first impulse was like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to record what I remember hearing. <laughs> um, and then as I started to do that, I realized that it was actually going to be this really like messy um, process of full of like uh, different interruptions and interventions <laughs> in the story. And that's part of where like the footnotes um, and things like that came about was I was as interested in kind of yeah, storytelling about storytelling, being like a little bit meta with it, um, and wrestling what it means to wrestling with what it means to tell a story, um, as much as the story itself. Um, so it was a really it was a really fun process too.
0: And definitely, especially over time in the book, as you hear the different women. Mm-hmm. Tell these stories, and then you might get to the same story with a different member, different generation, and they have a totally different mm-hmm. perspective on what that story looks like and what it is. And they each kind of twist them to try to define themselves and who they are and and why mm-hmm. they've made the decisions that they've made.
1: Yeah, no, completely. I, I, yeah. I mean, another book that I. I remember lo- like I, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. Um, it's Caramello by Sandra Cisneros. And in that book, it's so playful with the structure too, but there will be family stories and then the grandmother's voice will just enter and it'll be in bold text. And it's the grandmother speaking like, hey, you're telling it wrong. Or there will be all these footnotes that are kind of like <laughs> Wikipedia footnotes, but you know that they're not really objective or impartial. <laughs> um, they're actually laced with, all these other meanings, too. And I, I just love that idea of the narrative being hijacked a bit, too, um, between different people, different generations, and kind of all the different voices that we contain within ourselves. <laughs> like, at least that's how it is for me, too. Like, I can definitely hear, like, oh, this is what my mom said. This is what, you know, this person would say. Um, and so it's oh yeah, it always feels kind of like a collective process, <laughs> even when it's really solitary.
0: And I, I love that as the differing stories, because it, it's sort of like familial memory. And mm. I remember reading Fatima Fahim Mirza's book, A Place mm. for Us, and I won't give any spoilers, but at the <laughs> end, someone comes in and gives their perspective on all of this information that you have been told and retold over and over. And it kind of blows your mind. And I felt like there's a moment in this book at the end where, um, mother is talking and you're kind of like, oh, this is like what happened. And it felt very similar, but in a very um, unique way to you and your style of storytelling yourself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I thought there were times when I was like, oh, maybe it's, it's like too meta and it's too much like stories about stories. But I had to learn to, yeah, to embrace that <laughs> because I realized like it's as much about the context around the stories and this desire, like, yeah, this grappling with, oh, is it possible... Like the daughter asks, like, is it possible to tell a story without sides? <laughs> um, which she realizes completely, it is completely impossible because it is so embodied. But yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm so glad that it resonated.
0: And one of the things I really liked about this book is how not descriptive isn't quite the right word, just how descriptive you are and the kinds of word choices that you make. And it was really interesting because as a disabled person, I'm I'm very aware of my body very early on in my life. And a lot of people, that's kind of a journey for them to kind of figure that out. But this book kind of slams you in the face <laughs> where it's almost telling you the story with how, what the bodies are doing. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the little signpost that you give. And there's some like grotesque elements to it and a lot going on with that. And I kind of just want you to expound on, (laughs) on your like writing style and the word choices that you make and uh, how that kind of developed in your writing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I love this question because I, when I was writing, I didn't realize how bodily the language was. (laughs) I had, I really had no kind of consciousness about it. And then it was only later when it was being read that people were like, wow, it's really, it's really bodily. There are a lot of like fluids happening. It's very (laughs) kind of like guided by the body. And yeah, it was something I didn't like consciously realize as a part of my style, but I think, yeah, I think there's some, yeah, there's a kind of embodiedness that I'm obsessed with and, and language being very, very bodily. Um, And I guess this impulse for the characters too, they don't necessarily want to sterilize anything or sanitize anything, that there is a kind of shamelessness with their bodies too. And this openness and intimacy um, with which they like talk about their bodies. And I think that is, again, like a sign of their, their intimacy. And also it's just like, I think I grew up with a family that was also very, like transparent (laughs) about bodies and um, completely casual (laughs) about like bodily functions and like excrement and urine and things like that. And so that kind of penetrated part of my consciousness as well is this, yeah, this casualness (laughs) of referring to these things. Yeah. And I also think that like they don't have you know, the privilege of necessarily being very distant from all of these bodily functions, like given their, their work too, like the mother working at the chicken farm and her job literally being to like, you know, scrape poop, <laughs> um, off of floors and things like that. Like, and the land to having, having a body, um, I think it's part of the, the indigenous, um, tradition of storytelling for them. Um, so those all kind of became entwined in my mind.
0: And it definitely lends itself to the fabulist elements because you're so descriptive it's kind of there's this also parallel fabulism of like the girl grows a tiger tail these (laughs) daughters are thrown in a river and they're pulled out and they're fish and they have to be fed until they're human again and like all of these different things and i remember i was listening to this at the gym and i was like paying really close attention because I didn't know what would change or what would happen next. Like fingernails could turn into butterflies. Like there are no rules, <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but
0: then you have those grotesque elements that balance that out. And I feel like if you put this on paper, like, you know, described it, it might not work in your mind, but when you see it on the paper, I, I, well, I guess when you read it, you uh, <laughs> it does. It it just, like, they work together in tandem. And I think that's such skill to be able to work with those two things. I could easily, you know, have just spiraled somewhere, you know, but you have such control over them and you kind of make it look a little bit effortless.
1: Oh, wow. I'm so happy to hear that because, yeah, I I, I wanted it to feel grounded and also have a kind of more, have these playful elements as well, but for that not to feel... Yeah, kind of too ethereal. Um, yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm really surprised also to hear the effortlessness because I think. I mean, originally when I was drafting it, I didn't really – yeah, I didn't have that much, like, pressure on myself. And so I kind of – I allowed myself to play with the language and be in that space. But I think later when I zoomed back and, like, looked at it, I had all these anxieties about, like, oh, is this literary? Like, what is this? Like, what is the genre? Am I doing it right? Like, am I – do I have a plot? Like, all of these things really um, – I don't know, made me so self-conscious. And so it was all I was always kind of like wrestling and battling with myself about like, oh, is this allowed? Like <laughs> is this is this fiction? Like what's what's going on? Yeah, but I'm so happy that the the original spirit that I put into the book came through too, and that sense of um that anything could happen, yeah, also like survive my my whole like self-conscious, like tearing apart of the manuscript at certain points too. Um, So that makes me really happy to hear.
0: Yeah. And I I can only imagine the amount of editing because they say, you know, the more easy it looks, the the harder the writer had to work, (laughs) you know?
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. The editorial process was, was really, it was really intense, but it needed to happen definitely because, because it was written as a collection initially, like every single chapter had its own arc. And And the way it is now, it still is a little bit like that and that there are these like little micro stories within the stories. But yeah, definitely the tale was initially like just a blip. It was like initially, you know, one chapter and that was it. (laughs) So everything came out in the editorial process, which I'm very happy about too. The Holes also came out in a very, very late draft. (laughs) So um, definitely in the end, I was like, oh, it's all worth it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And one of the the big things that I was very interested, like I wanted to keep turning pages to find out what would happen next. And I really appreciate like the meta quality that you're very conscious that this is a story that you are being told as well as the stories within the stories. And they kind of, it's like a hall of mirrors and you're just like turning around, like what, what is going on? Does it matter? Like, you know, I like how there are no answers in the book as well. It's not like you are saying some sort of definitive moral. It's more like, here are a bunch of different things you could take away from this. It depends on, like, who you believe. And it's like a – I feel like in that way, it was like a choose-your-own-adventure, but not really, <laughs> if that makes sense.
1: Oh, I love that. I love that because I love choose-your-own-adventure. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was definitely thinking about that, too. Like, I – there, there was a point where the, the manuscript did have a very, like, definite end. I don't want to give any major spoilers, but basically the the character was like, this is what the tale means and this is what I'm going to do with it. And it's very, very certain and um, was very close-ended. Um, and it was like that for a long time. And it was only when I realized, like, I was, you know, laying in bed at night staring at the ceiling, like, wait, something feels a little bit wrong. <laughs> like, something feels off. And it definitely was, yeah, it was that sense of, like, oh, I – I shouldn't necessarily, because so much of the storytelling is playing with the idea of a moral um, and kind of subverting the expectation of a moral, I was like, oh, I can't end it like this, with this very clear-cut, kind of clean, oh, this is what this means, the end. Um, yeah, and so I was like, okay, I have to learn to kind of leave those doors open and <laughs> um, trust trust the language and the reader as well.
0: And we'll be back with more from this episode after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode is our Reading Women's store. So this month we have our signature Navy totes on sale and these are gorgeous totes ready for your trip to the library so I quickly pick up your books that you put on hold or I take mine to the pool. I put my towels in it. I take packages to go mail. It is an incredibly versatile tote and it has square a square bottom so you can set it down and it will stand up and it's the perfect size for whatever adventure that you have planned on the front of the totes it has reclaim half the bookshelf our tagline as well as our logo so you can show the love of reading women and reading women all at the same time so you can find that over in our store you can go to etsy and search reading women or you can just go to the link in the show notes and that will take you right to our store where you can get 20 percent off one of our signature reading women totes. Another thing I really wanted to look at is the the feeling, there's so many feelings. I have in all caps in my notes, feelings. There's so many feelings in the book. And I think that definitely comes from almost the, I don't say conflicting desires, but they're often not exactly aligned desires of the different women in the Family that are telling these stories. And so I thought we could land there for a few minutes and talk about what these women, I guess what these women want. This sounds like a like a movie title shirt yeah, yeah. or something. <laughs> what do women want, yeah. <laughs> um, but they all want very different things. But at the same time, you can also see a through line of like, they're all looking for themselves and their own independence and on what they've had to do to kind of, be at peace with themselves. And if they've actually achieved that, there are so many different things at play here, which is really fun to follow through. And is very thought provoking.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I, yeah, it's really interesting. I think for like the daughter generation, her desire to kind of intervene in the past generations, it's almost like she she's on some kind of time travel rescue mission or try or in her ideal mind, it would be some kind of time travel rescue mission and I think for her it's about yeah wondering what possibilities are there for her future um, like what would it mean to kind of yeah diverge in a way from her lineage and also at the same time feel rooted in it um, again with like kind of those conflicting desires of like not wanting to necessarily like repeat the patterns of marriage and leaving home in this way in this very violent way but at the same time like oh what else is there like what else is possible and and also how to like root herself more deeply in the lineage so again a bit conflicting and yeah i, I think i was really interested i think the grandmother i she has the most elusive <laughs> of the voices i it was it was such a surprise to write her voice in her letters because i had no idea why she was writing or what she wanted or what her motivations were when i was writing them and it was really interesting to realize that in some ways it's like, she doesn't want to be known or understood in a very straightforward way. Um, and that, you know, she's, she says that she isn't writing out of remorse um, or out of apology or in some kind of passive way. But at the same time, the fact that she's writing them feels like this, this desire to reach out. Um, so again, it's like her, her actions and her voice sometimes um, conflict with each other in really interesting ways. Um, and I was like, you know what? She can be a bit of an, an enigma <laughs> through the whole book. Like, I think that's what she really wants in a lot of ways—to um, be a bit like slippery <laughs> and hard to grasp. Like, I think that for her, that's a form of safety or feels comfortable. Yeah. And then the mother's generation—I don't know—her voice to me felt the most urgent. It was one of the first voices that came to me, and this desire to flee home, but at the and and kind of create her own island of a family um but at the same time remaining tethered to her to her father it's again (laughs) like this simultaneous desire to sever and like tether oneself (laughs) i think that uh it recurs through the generations
0: i'm not sure if i'm supposed to have favorites but the grandmother's letters are my favorite (laughs) (laughs) just i'm so glad (laughs) um she like you said just so slippery and like she is very obviously an unreliable narrator not to mention the fantastical elements that are happening like her daughter's turning into fishes and uh, there was just something about it how she almost seemed to revise her own stories while she was telling them and i love the footnotes of the translations um which was really fun um to see and uh Yeah, there's just so much about her that I found fascinating and how like she's almost like the antagonist in the story, but not really. But if because there really isn't, I don't know, a protagonist either in the story. So, (laughs) you know, I just loved how she was all of these things all at once. So this is just me just starting a one woman fangirl club for the (laughs) grandmother, I guess.
1: No, that makes me so happy because I was a little bit worried. I was like, oh, is she coming across as like too villainous, like just kind of senselessly um, doing things. And um, yeah, I was definitely afraid of that. So it makes me really happy to, to hear that like she she's really complicated in this really interesting way. I think for me, the most interesting thing about writing those letters that I kept returning to is that moment when she goes back and decides to save the daughters after she's, you know, thrown them into the water. Like that to me, that was something that I like obsessed over constantly that felt like a huge turning point in the book is it wasn't the act itself so much as wanting to go back and undo that act. And I think that is part of what you were saying of how she's like revising her own story as she says it. That moment of like revision where she decides to undo what she's done is so fascinating to me, um, and was something I kept returning to. Um, I was like, oh, what does it mean to, like, commit this act of violence, but then go back? (laughs) Like, what does that mean? Um, And that, yeah, that definitely felt to me like one of the defining moments (laughs) um, for for her, yeah.
0: Another one of um, the generations, the daughter was also very interesting to read because I I didn't know much about the book going into it. I try to avoid reading descriptions or whatever, just because I don't want any spoilers. And so I wasn't sure if the book was queer going into it, but then I was like, wait, T. Kira blurb this book.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I was like, I don't know what that means, what's going to happen. And then this very very natural kind of relationship happens with the daughter and another girl who's kind of involved in finding the letters and different things. And it was kind of almost the most natural thing, almost like um, the fantastical elements that happen in the story. And they're very intimate scenes are full of like body imagery and that intimacy that happens with that. Um, So I want to talk to you a little bit about that and what that was like for you writing those moments um, between the two girls.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is my, one of my favorite things to talk about because I think writing their relationship was, it felt like such a refuge and a joy to be writing. Like when I was writing their parts, I, I had like no awareness of anything else because it was so, um, it was so magical and so interesting to be in that space. And, I think what's interesting is that initially, daughter and Ben their their sections were were it was actually really short. Um, it was like one chapter. She was a brief character who just showed up and left. Um, and my editor, Victory Matsui, was like, "Oh, this feels like a longer relationship. It doesn't feel over for them." And I I was saying that it was so hard for me to imagine a future for them because. I was so used to writing stories about two women in some kind of like romantic relationship or some kind of obsessive relationship that ended abruptly. And it was always about looking back and seeing that moment of severance and parting. And this was the first time that I embarked on like creating a longer relationship and thinking about what it means for them to have a future, which was, in a way, imagining my own future, which was terrifying. And I was like, oh, wow, so I'm transforming and learning (laughs) as I'm writing it, not just on a craft level, but, like, on a person level (laughs) and, uh, like, what my imagination is capable of doing. Um, But, yeah, I think writing their moments, it was... It felt like fantasy and also very embodied at the same time. And I, I loved that. And I was like, oh, so much of writing queerness for me, my whole life has been about fantasy, It has been about um, imagination <laughs> um, and centering desire. So it was so it was so playful and I think reparative to 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 write their scenes together.
0: And I think when you line daughter and Ben's story up with, you know, the mother's story and grandmother's story Ooh. and how those two generations, chose a man because they felt like they had to in a lot of ways mm-hmm. to escape situations and the fact that their choices whatever they might have turned out did make this possible mm. for daughter and Ben was really meaningful in the text to be able to see that like like this chain had been broken that had happened almost recurringly throughout these women's you know generations throughout the time
1: yeah completely i daughter, too, and kind of constructing or seeking out her queer lineage, you know, the gay pirate story and the lesbian river story, I think was also a form of, well, I mean, part speculation, part what's being told to her, um, and like thinking about an origin myth that's queer and a creation myth that's queer and what that would look like um, for her family, kind of in contrast then to the choices that the mother and grandmother felt that they had to make. Yeah, in order to feel like, oh, I, I'm i safe or I have mobility in the world. Yeah, but I definitely think queerness is possibility and imagination is something I was really interested in. I was less interested in narrative that centered like a conflict be- between them. Um, I remember like hearing that feedback too of like, oh, there's no conflict between them. I was like, there's a little bit of conflict, but I'm not really interested um, in writing their romance as something that's very conflicted. I was more interested in, oh, what does it mean for – queerness to save you like this is something that is saving her um and what would that look like
0: no oh, I'm I really I really love that and I found her looking for queerness in her family tree really fascinating because in the stories that we tell ourselves there's often a scrubbing of queer narratives even though they've ex- always existed it's like trying to survive these generations of storytelling is um, sometimes a difficult thing but then like rediscovering them or trying to find yourself in the past is definitely that process of of narrative which was i'd never i guess really seen that process as much on a page before in this distinct way of familial sto- storytelling in in that way so i really appreciate those like flashes back for for her to try to figure out kind of her own identity and when she didn't find it in some of the stories her like grandmother and different things were, were telling per se, like she was able to find a way, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. I, I, I just, I, I was, I was thinking about like, oh, what does it mean for this character to not feel lonely? <laughs> like to, to not feel, oh, like I'm some kind of offshoot of this family, but actually her queerness is something that, um, returns her to those origin myths. So it actually centers her rather than marginalizes her, which what I was really interested in, even if it isn't necessarily like realistic, quote unquote, realistic, like that's um, that's what I was interested in imagining. Yeah.
0: Um, so I feel like we are all kind of in the space of this awkward just just i don't even know how to describe 2020 just hellscape maybe um but a lot of us are using books as refuge or rereading our favorites uh, so what are the books that you have been enjoying reading that have given you like that that space to just breathe for a moment during this year
1: wow yeah i thank you for this question i love talking about <laughs> i love talking <laughs> about books that i'm reading um, I actually just started a book that – it's coming out in June 2021, also a one-world author. Um, it's called Ghost Forest um, by Pik Feng. Um I, I've just started it. Um, it's written in vignettes, and there's so much space on the page, and the language is so intentional. It just feels like every word has been, like, grown from a seed or something. Like, it, it just – it feels – every sentence is so beautiful and hard won. Um, so I'm reading that and I'm really excited for it to come out. I know it was sent to TK Madden as well. So (laughs) (laughs) maybe, maybe blurbs. Um, uh, another book that I read earlier in the year, but I, I, started rereading, um, is the black cathedral by Marcial Gala, which is just the wildest, one of the wildest books that I've ever read. It's, it's also written in vignettes, but there's like a chorus of voices. Um, they're almost like little monologues, um, that drive the story forward. Um, but it's just, it's incredible. And, and it has that feeling of, I have no idea what's going to happen on the next page in the next sentence. Like everything could change. Um, yeah. And I, I think being disoriented, I'm disoriented in life. So I'm like, might as well be disoriented in reading, (laughs) might as well be disoriented in books. Um, so another big like reread, um, Revenge of the Mooncake Vixen, which I uh, reread constantly and can kind of reread in pieces. Like I think a lot of books I'm turning to, also the White Book by by Han Kong is like a book that I can pick up and then I, I flip to a page and I read that page and it feels almost like, I don't know, a prayer. Um, yeah, the, I think those are the, retur- the books I'm returning to. Fractured Realities because <laughs> I'm in a fractured state. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we are here talking because of uh, the Miami Book Fair that is happening in November. So aside from that, which you've already mentioned at the top of the show, um, what's next on the agenda for you?
1: Oh, um Quite a lot, but it's all very, (laughs) like, I have a, um, I'm like a really obsessive planner, um, and so I'm like constantly in my planner, like writing down things, but I always forget to like convert in time zones, so (laughs) I'm always like, oh no, like last minute. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, it's exciting. I mean, I have a couple events coming up, like one with the Boston Library, um, one with an author who I really love, Jessica J. Lee, whose book Two Trees Make a Forest is another book that I've read this year repeatedly um, about, um, yeah, Taiwanese diaspora literature, which is exciting. Yeah, I'm working now on on a little chapbook that's a retelling of Wuthering Heights, but it's it's queer and it's Taiwanese. Um, so I've been doing a lot of rereading of Wuthering Heights as well. Yeah.
0: (laughs) All of the angst.
1: Oh, so much drama. I'm like, this book (laughs) is made for me. Like it's all of the drama, all of the intense emotions and declarations of love and hate, um, which I love.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your book with me. It's been really delightful.
1: Thank you so much for, yeah, your questions and your beautiful insight into the book. Um, it's always, yeah, it's so amazing to, to have conversations. I feel like it makes me understand and appreciate my work more, um, which is such a gift. So thank you so much.
0: I'd like to thank Kaming Chang for talking with me about her debut novel, Bestiary, which is out now from One World. You can find her on her website, kamingchang.com, and on social media at kamingchang. Of course, all of her information will be linked in the show notes. I'd like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com, and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find me at KD Winchester. Thanks so much for listening.